Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Reverend Steve Andrews. We start a new book again today. This time it's the Minor Prophet Nahum. Minor isn't really a reference to his character in any way, just the shortness of his book. So we've got the five major prophets, the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament, and and Nahum qualifies as one of the minor. Now, in fairness, we really don't know a whole lot of anything about Nahum. Um, His years as the prophet of Israel may have ranged from about 663 B.C. until about 612 B.C. His writings... um, I should. I said prophet of Israel. I should have said prophet of Judah because Israel's already destroyed by the point that he is the prophet. So he's going to serve Yahweh as his prophet to speak his word primarily to the people of Judah. But what we see instead is God speaking through Nahum in his in Scripture, an oracle, a vision of promised destruction that's coming against. Nineveh, which is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire and a major enemy for the people of God and Judah at that time. Now, many Christians are, are not familiar with Nahum at all. Um, again, it's a, we're talking about a minor prophet. The Bible has over 1,100 chapters in it. Nahum has just three, so it's a very small book. Um, we don't see it even in our church lectionary. If you follow the three-year lectionary series in the LCMS, it doesn't show up at all. So maybe you'll enjoy reading through this book and, and seeing some of the connections that we can make with the rest of Scripture. Today we read chapter 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Yahweh is a jealous and avenging God. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh takes vengeance on his enemies and keeps wrath for his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power, and Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers, The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Yahweh is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against Yahweh? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against Yahweh, a worthless counselor. Thus says Yahweh, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. Yahweh has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image 
I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This is the word of the Lord. Just reading it through with you there, the, the thing that immediately pops to my mind would be the question, does Yahweh, does, does our God sound like somebody you want to mess with? Is this someone you want to fight against? And our, our obvious answer as Christians is going to be, no, I don't want to fight against God. But as we think about the reality of our sin, that really is what we do. Sin is rebellion against God. We have, from the beginning, declared war against our Creator. And it's only through the blood of Christ that we have that peace, that we have that reconciliation, so that we are not his enemy, but instead the one to whom he brings good news. So there's a, a bit of a gospel start here for us. And and there is a little bit of that, right, sprinkled through the, the chapter. So you've got verse 2. You've got verse 7. You've got verse 15 and 16. Ah, sorry, there's no 16. 15 is just a little longer. So verses 2, 7, and 15, spaced throughout the chapter here, these little snippets of, of something positive being spoken, either of the Lord's character or of what he's doing for his people. But in reality... In a way, you could argue he's doing all of this for his people as he defends them from their enemies by enacting his judgment. So verse 1, an oracle is essentially a vision that the Lord has shared this with Nahum, and Nahum is now supposed to share this as well. That there are notes in it to the people of Judah displays that this should be spoken to the people of Judah. But should it be spoken to the people of Nineveh as well? Perhaps, right? I mean, that would be... That would be the kind of language we're going to see. We saw some of in this chapter already, and we're going to see in the next chapter too. I mean, the end of chapter 2, Behold, I am against you, declares Yahweh of hosts. So the text would indeed make it seem like God had the intention of Nahum delivering this word to Nineveh. Now, how would Nineveh respond to such a thing? Well, that's a question we're not able to answer here. Um, most likely, though, because God does carry through with this, they did not respond by repentance. We know that much. But if they responded with anger, if they responded with threats, if they responded by simply not caring, that we don't have. At least not here. Not yet. So, Nahum, his name in Hebrew means that he is one who comforts. Uh, he's from Elkosh, or Elkosh. We don't know the location of that place. Uh, it's not, not a well-known biblical city of any kind. We learn in the opening verses about God's character, that he is jealous, and rightly so. 
He is the one who has made all of heaven and earth and everything in it. He's the one who gives us life and all that we have and all that we are. And yet, as you look to verse 14, how does Assyria repay him for that? They create little metal statues and wooden statues, and they worship those as though those little statues are the things that gave them life. So, yes, Yahweh is jealous. He wishes that they would worship him instead of their own hands. And so that's one of his pieces of, of his character there. We get that he's avenging. We see that one twice. We are taught, taught by Scripture, both in the Old Testament and also in the New, I'm thinking Romans 12, uh, that we are not to seek vengeance ourselves, but to leave that to God, and he will take care of things with his timing whether it's here and now or if it's patiently waiting for the judgment on the last day, but God can bring about judgment now in the present because that judgment is rightly deserved by all of us. And that's what we're going to see happen again here to Nineveh. He is wrathful. So that that shares with us the idea of his, his jealousy and his vengeance building up into an anger that gets poured out and we do see that poured out language here in the text as well. Down in verse 6, his wrath is poured out like fire. And in this case, particularly against the city of Nineveh, the enemy of Assyria as a whole, the capital there. We also learn that God keeps wrath for his enemies. So while there is forgiveness in the scriptures, certainly for his enemies, so for those who don't repent, the Lord continues to maintain that he will get vengeance against them. He will be just. And that's the importance of verse 3 there. He is slow to anger. We're not just picturing some, some really strong man who flips out over the littlest things. We all know people like that. They get angry over pretty much nothing. And if we're honest, <laughs> that's us sometimes. God is not quick to anger. He's not going to fly off the handle as the expression goes. He is slow to anger. He has great patience with sinners. But he will not clear the guilty. Those, those who are to be judged are going to be judged. And only by faith in Christ is that not true also of us. It is Christ's forgiveness that clears us of our sins, that we may one day stand before God's judgment throne and hear not guilty. God works through his creation. He's going to be seen there in verse 3, the whirlwind, the storm, the clouds. He rebukes the sea, makes it dry. You can talk to your kids about this one. When did God do this? Certainly Exodus chapter 14, as God parts the Red Sea, delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. You see the parallels there, the, the delivery that God gives from an enemy is being shown here as well as God is going to deliver his people of Judah from their enemy Assyria. Not quite the same relationship there. They're not slaves in Assyria like the Israelites were back in, in Egypt. But there's parallels, there's connections. Bashan, Carmel, Bashan, Carmel, however you want to pronounce those, Lebanon, those three places are all off to the north of Israel, and they are known as being exceedingly fruitful lands. 
But God can make even that wither. He can take that away. He can make creation shake in its boots. He can make the mountains quake and the hills melt. Again, would you want to mess with this guy, this guy, this God? All fear, Yahweh. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Certainly not Nineveh. And it certainly would not be us, except... Ask your kids here. Who did endure God's wrath? The heat of his anger, his indignation. Talk about Jesus on Good Friday on the cross, who endured this for us and lived, rose again, defeated death for us. And now, because of this, we can stand before him, but not before his indignation and his, his anger, but in his grace and in his love. Verse 7, again, another one of those verses, glimpses of comfort of God speaking for Judah. Yahweh is not evil. Yahweh is not by his very nature one that is taken to, to wrath. It's not, his, it's not his starting point. Here's his starting point. Yahweh is good. His vengeance and his wrath come out of that goodness of his as he cares for his creation. He is a stronghold. So you think of a, of a castle uh, that, that's defendable. He is our stronghold. Cares for us. He knows those who take refuge in him, those who seek the Lord for their protection and their care. He knows them. That's Old Testament marriage language right there. To know someone um, is often... Well, it's often a verb used as a synonym to, to the idea of having sex with your spouse. And so again, it's marriage language, that the Lord knows his people. He is our groom, we are his bride. We talk that way about Christ in the New Testament, and there's a glimpse of it in the Old Testament from time to time as well. Verse 8, with an overflowing flood, he makes a complete end of his adversaries. Overflowing flood is an interesting phrase. It again connects you back to Genesis 6 this time, as God uses water to destroy, to judge the earth. It also could connect back to Exodus 14 again, as God used the waters of the Red Sea as a flood upon the Egyptian army to drown them. And while God has promised he would not flood the entire earth again, he has not promised that he might not use water as a means to destroy, to judge those who have earned it. Verse 9, note the contrast. What do you plot against Yahweh? Plot, that's devising a plan, versus he will make a complete end. So you come up with these wicked ideas, but God actually follows through. You're plotting, he's doing so while you were there plotting against God's people, God was making his judgment upon you. The first two images of verse 10 show that it's just getting worse. Thorns are bad, 
but when the thorns start entangling amongst themselves, it just gets even worse. They're getting thicker. And then you get the drunkard who continues to drink. He's just going to get worse. But God is going to consume them like stubble fully dried. That's a picture of, really, of a harvest that's already occurred. And so all you have is the little stumps that are left out in the field of of the stalks of corn or grain or whatever it may have been. Fully dried up. Farmers today, they'll burn that. You might drive by a field and it's been completely blackened. That's the kind of picture here of what the Lord is doing to his enemy. Verse 11, From you came one who plotted evil against Yahweh, Probably a reference to Sennacherib, um, who was a commander there of, of Nineveh in the past. Isaiah chapter 36 verse 1 could be a reference point there. As you read about King Hezekiah and the interaction between those two. Verse 12 speaks of the pride of Nineveh, the strength of Nineveh, of Syria as a nation, as a whole, and yet that they will be cut down. Like a tree. Like a nice, strong, big tree. Just chopped down. They're done. No more. God has used Assyria to afflict his people. God used them to judge Israel when Israel had been faithful for gener- faithless, sorry, for generations. God is using Nineveh to even afflict the people of Judah because of their periods of faithlessness, but he will do so no more. He is now going to rescue them from that affliction as he judges Assyria and destroys them. He will break their yoke. And that's farming language again. That as a farmer with oxen, for example, you would put a yoke around their shoulders. It's that harness that they would use to be attached to your plows and plow your field. The Assyrians have, have placed a yoke upon Judah. They have placed a burden upon them. A burden that includes fear and, and perhaps some, some forced labor of kind. We see that in various points of the Old Testament for God's people. But God is breaking them free. He's releasing them from that that captivity. Verse 14 speaks directly against Assyria and Nineveh again. God has spoken against them that their name shall be gone. Meaning he's going to remove them from creation. And starting with the house of their gods, starting with their temples, he's going to cut them off. Their punishment is because of their sin. It's because of their idolatry against the Lord. With verse 15, our final verse here, Luther said, this is the only verse in the whole book about Jesus. Uh, But we've already been able to mention Jesus in connection to a couple other places here too. This verse mirrors Isaiah 52 verse 7 pretty well. That's obviously the much better known verse. Um, But a messenger... A messenger delivers whatever word God has for them to deliver. 
feet were an ugly thing, um, as they are a culture without the same kind of footwear we have, uh, just open-toed sandals for the most part, and dirty, dusty roads. Uh, feet get dirty pretty quick. Uh, they stay dirty most of the time, and if they get torn up, well, then they get infected pretty easily. So feet are not clean in, in the way that our feet are today. And yet, we are called to look to the feet of the one who brings good news. That's how great the news is, that we should even care about the feet of the man who brings it. It shows the posture of, of bowing, of kneeling, of respect. And yes, as Luther points out, ultimately the good news, the good news, is, is just seen in a glimpse here in Nahum as we talk about God delivering Judah from Assyria's destruction. But ultimately, the good news is delivered by Jesus as he frees us from our sin and gives us life everlasting. So you've got that connection here too. The Lord instructs Judah to remain faithful. In contrast to Israel, who was not faithful and God allowed Assyria to destroy, and also to Assyria, to Nineveh, who has not been faithful to the Lord. Nineveh will be a threat no more. Never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. God has avenged his people.